this evening, Acts chapter 12. We're going to be uh, letting our fingers do the walking through the yellow pages. Remember that? Yes. Only this is the Bible pages tonight. So we're going to take a few, uh, just a few snippets of Scripture in our Bible study this evening. We are talking about control, if you remember, folks. And a couple weeks ago, we began talking about control and the need for control and where it all started that was in the Garden of Eden and uh, with Satan and passed on to Adam and Eve and right on down to Cain and on to the human race. Then we talked about the root, the fruit, and the biblical resolution of control in James chapter 3 and how uh, that bitter envying and strife can get in and cause us to, to grieve and, and uh, go the wrong direction. And then owning um, it all and having nothing. That was Solomon last week from Ecclesiastes chapter 2. And so tonight, what I'd like to do is talk, as I mentioned in our first session, I think most of us, we're not that control-crazy, frenzied person that's, that wants to be in complete control, not unless there's some of you out there that really like that and you enjoy that, but most of us, we're sort of probably in the middle somewhere. We, we want to have some level of control, all of us do, but we're not that, control, uh, that, that absolute control freak, um, except for my sister who had to start the new peanut butter jar when we were kids, she's the one who had to take off the lid and she had to get the knife in there and start the peanut butter jar. Anybody like to do that? That's what she liked to do. That was her thing. So we let her have it. So whatever. But what might be more applicable for us tonight there, as you see in your notes, is uh, to most of us, those subtle things that we do that we may not even realize are a control issue. We don't think of ourselves as a controlling person. But there's three things that might be more subtle, and we don't even realize it. And so there's snippets from God's Word where we can look at these little subtle things and see if maybe they fit us at times where we might have this controlling function and don't really realize it. So it's, the, the title tonight is Subtle Ways That We Keep God From Having Control in Our Life that we keep God from having control in our life. And so Acts chapter 12 is where we are tonight. Let's just stand if we can, please. I'll just read a couple of scriptures here, a couple of verses. We'll start with this one tonight. The first subtle way is found in Acts chapter 12. And look at verse 13. Acts 12, 13. And as Peter knocked at the door of the gate, a, dance, a damsel came to hearken named Rhoda. And when she knew Peter's voice, she opened not the gate for gladness, but ran in and told how Peter stood before the gate. And they said unto her, Thou art mad. But she constantly affirmed that it was even so. Then said they, It is his angel. But Peter continued knocking, and when they had opened the door and saw him, they were astonished. We're going to talk about the subtle ways that we keep God from having control. Father, thank you for the word of God tonight. Thank you for each one here. And I pray, God, that you would just open our hearts to your word about these subtle ways and areas that we might need to give you more control, that we would be more like Jesus Christ as a result. So bless your word and our hearts and each one who's chosen to come out tonight in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. The first little subtle way, folks, tonight that I want you to think about in ways that we can keep God from having control there in your notes is... And I don't have my thing here, so you're going to forward it for me. Okay. Yeah, is praying but not believing. Praying but not believing. Have you ever been there? 
Have we ever been there as Christians? We pray, but sometimes we pray, and it might not be with, man, God, you're, I know you're really going to do this. It's just, well, I'm praying, but I really don't expect much. At any given time, we could be there. I trust tonight as we hit prayer time that each of us were thinking, you know, I'm praying, believing that God can do great and mighty things. That what He can do on Easter and what He can do for those who need healing and comfort and help and grace. But sometimes, folks, if we're honest with ourselves, we might pray and don't always believe. And that's what was going on here with this group. Uh, The background to that is that Peter was put in prison by Herod And he would have probably been killed the very next day. But that night, as you know the story here that leads up to the part that we just read, he was miraculously awoken by an angel in the prison, and he was released under the cover of darkness, and they led him outside the city gates, and he went out and he escaped. It was a miraculous thing. Now, Acts 12, 5, just a a page or so back there earlier in the chapter, says, Peter, therefore, was kept in the prison, but prayer was made without ceasing of the church unto God for him. They were praying without ceasing. Folks, they were intensely praying at the very moment that Peter was knocking on the door. And so we have to give these people credit. They're praying fervently sometime at night because it was under, under cover of darkness. Everyone's asleep in the prison These people are up having a prayer meeting for Peter. And so they had a heart for God and must have had some confidence that prayer was worth their time and their effort. In fact, we won't go back there, but in Acts chapter 4, when Peter and John were being rebuked by the Pharisees and they were being threatened, don't preach anymore in Jesus' name, and they let them go, and the group gets together and they assembled and they prayed, and during that prayer time it says the place was shaken. Do you remember that from Acts chapter 4? The place was shaken because they were under the power of God and they believed what they were praying, that God could do great and powerful things. And so you'd think that, well, they not too long earlier before that experienced the great power of God in answer to prayer. In Acts chapter 4, now we get to Acts chapter 12, Peter's in trouble again, he's in prison and they're praying fervently for him. Lord, deliver him, protect him, bring him out. They just killed James. And, and uh, because Herod said, oh, please the Jews that they killed James, let's get Peter in jail too, or let's take him out. And we'll really be, you know, uh, satisfactory to the Jews. The Jews will appreciate that. And so the people of God were fervently praying. And so <clears throat> the place was shaken back in Acts chapter 4. It means they were stirred to, to passion and moved with power. And as a result, they spake great boldness. So given that previous experience, they're praying again, and they should have had some expectation. Hey, you know what, Lord? We we prayed this before, and and the place was shaken, and we we saw thousands of people get saved. Now now our brother Peter, he's in prison. What's going to happen to him? What's going to happen? And so um, they're back at it. And so there in your notes, letter A, they falsely accused the one who did believe. So look what happens. We just read it, Acts chapter 12 and verse 13. Peter gets freed. He comes knocking at the door of the gate. A damsel came to hearken named Rhoda. And when she knew Peter's voice, she didn't even open the gate. She ran in to say, hey, guess what? Guess what? Peter's here. Peter's here. And rather than believe, folks, what's their response? They falsely accused this little girl of being crazy, of being a lunatic. Look what it says there. It says, 
Verse 14, And when she knew Peter's voice, she opened not the gate for gladness, but ran in and told how Peter stood before the gate. And they said unto her, Thou art mad. You're crazy. There's no way that could be him. Folks, why wouldn't they believe that? Maybe because they just had that lack of faith. Like, there's no way. But, but they're praying fervently. And sometimes we don't always pray with that expectancy that we could. And that would be a way of keeping God from having control over something because we are thinking, nah, that couldn't possibly be the case. And so, despite her persistence, they rejected her outright. They just, they rejected her affirmations. Look what it says. Um, and they said unto her, verse 15, thou art mad, but she constantly affirmed that it was even so. She kept continuing. So in your notes there, notice this. Unbelief, folks, has an insidious effect on our relationship with God. We can pray, but if we're not believing when God does something, we could miss it. And that's what was happening with this group of fervent people. They're praying, but when now their prayers are answered, they're not quick to believe. And so unbelief is robbing God of his control in our lives. God wants to do things, and the effectual fervent prayer of a righteous man avails much, but if we're not in the believing spirit, if we're not praying by faith, then we thwart God's control in some ways because we just disbelieve it. We don't see it as, as valid. And so we fail to acknowledge His work in us and in our circumstances. And so if that's the case, by default, we sort of we put us in control rather than God because we're not counting on Him to really do what we're praying. And so it's subtle, but it can occur too often in our prayer time. And so even though God might be working, if we are not believing, we're not seeing His work in our life. And that prevents Him from having that control over us because we're not allowing ourselves to see it or to believe it. Peter was delivered. He's there knocking, and he's there, but they're just, they're not responding to it. And how easy it is sometimes for us in the weariness of this world to just think, ah, you know what? God, that's not going to happen. That'll never happen. And even though we might throw a casual prayer at it, God wants us to be fervently and passionately and expectantly praying to Him in the will of God. And so Martin Luther once said this, what, what greater rebellion, impiety, or insult to God can there be than not to believe His promises? So that unbelief can sort of help us not see God's control over our lives. And so they falsely accused this one in your notes. Letter B, secondly, they rationalized away the true power of God. Look what they said there in verse 15. It can't be Peter. It's got to be something else. No, no, there's no way that it's Peter. I know we were praying, but there's no way it could be Peter. Rather, what is it? Then they said, it is his angel. So they believed that it could be an angel coming before it could be possibly Peter actually getting out of prison. And so that's what, so that's what sort of unbelief can do. It can just sort of change our perspective potentially on the obvious. And we don't see things the way that God wants us to see it. So rather than taking Peter's presence at face value, he's out there knocking, it's really him. 
they created another possibility for Peter being there and not in prison. And so rationalization, when we rationalize things away, nah, that wasn't God, or no, it really wasn't his power. It couldn't have been. It's another form of unbelief that robs God of his greatness and limits his ability to demonstrate his control in our lives. It's just subtle for us. We're not shaking our fist at God. It's just a subtle sort of, mm, don't, don't know, don't really think so. And so we just excuse it. And his work in our lives, we excuse it away. It's just something else. And I think that's a front to God sometimes because he wants us to believe him in childlike faith. Right, class? He wants us to believe him in childlike faith. Like, absolutely, this can happen. And yet we can miss it. And that grieves the heart of God. We rationalize things away and don't see them like they really are. Here's a story. It's, it's like the man who was walking his dog on the beach. And a man and his dog were walking on the beach when they came upon another visitor to the beach. The owner of the dog was proud of his dog's newly mastered feet. So he said to the visitor, Hey, hey, watch this. Whereupon the t he tossed a piece of driftwood far out into the sea, and the dog immediately ran on top of the water and fetched the wood and ran back. The visitor just shook his head in disbelief. Whereupon the owner repeated the procedure twice, and the dog did the same thing. Finally, he asked the visitor, did you notice anything unusual? And uh, the visitor responded, well, your dog can't swim, can he? <laughs> Rationalize, we missed the obvious. We missed the bigger picture. And folks, that, that's so often what can happen with us. We miss what God is doing in our lives because we fail to see his work for whatever reason. And, and then that sort of takes his power and control out of our minds and we don't look at God as we should. We can rationalize anything away. Anger at a child for not meeting your expectations or doing something the exact way that you wanted. We get angry and, and, and shouldn't. Or we rationalize why we couldn't have our devotions for the past few days. We were just too busy doing important other things. And God, I'm sorry I couldn't get to that this week. It was just, I was busy. I had a lot going on. And we can sort of rationalize that away. Or we had an argument with our spouse and we haven't been, been close and we didn't like the way they spoke to us and so we rationalize that away. Well, if they treat me that way, I'm just going to give them their space then and just step back for a while and take a few days of of separation. And we can rationalize that away like, well, that's just how we do. That's just what we do in our relationship. And, and it's easy to, uh, to formulate that in our minds where we can rationalize things away. And so that's possibly what the, what the folks were doing here. They were missing the power of God when he was doing something that they were praying for. And they should have quickly said, it's Peter? Of course it's Peter. We've been praying for Peter. Go bring him in. But they didn't have that initial reaction. In fact, in your notes there, you'll ever see they were astonished. 
It says that they were astonished. They were out of their mind with unbelief. Verse 16, but Peter continued knocking. Imagine him. He gets out of prison. He gets released from two prisoners that are bolted to him or chained to him on either side and two other prisoners guarding the door. He gets through the inner door of the prison, the outer door of the prison. He gets outside the outer court and he's outside and now he gets to go to this house and he's knocking on the door and he can't get into the people of God's house. There's something paradoxical about that, isn't it? And that's what happens. They didn't fully believe in the power of their prayers. They were at other times in Scripture when the same word astonished was used. And you know when the word astonished is used generally in the New Testament, when, if you look? For example, in Mark 5, when Jesus raised the little girl from the dead... The, the disciples' reaction was when they saw him walking on, uh, uh, or they saw her, they were astonished. Well, that would be something to be astonished about. Who does that? But it was when the miraculous was done, they were astonished. When Jesus came walking on the water, the disciples were astonished. And you know what Jesus did at those times? He charged them with doubt and unbelief. Oh, disciples, wherefore did you doubt? Why did you doubt me back on the shore? Matthew chapter 14, when I fed the 5,000 plus women and children, you doubted that, so you had to be put in the storm to, to trust me. And even then, you thought the worst when I came walking to you. You thought I was a, a demon. You thought I was an evil spirit coming to get you. And you thought that you were going to die. You cried out in terror. Rather than believe that I just fed 5,000 men plus women and children with a boy's lunch, who else could it be that's walking on the water? And so, um, I think God is sometimes used to our unbelief, but unbelief is, a, is an affront to God and His desire to work in our lives. And so, we don't want to take back that control and render our prayers ineffective by not believing when we pray. Not believing when we pray. And so, that's one of the subtle things that can be a controlling hindrance, God having control, that is, and that's praying but not believing. We need to be like Hannah in the Old Testament. Remember Hannah? She was miserable. She didn't have children. And she says to Elkanah, her husband, I want a, I want a child. And she goes into the temple to pray with Eli there. And finally, she gave it over to the Lord and she came out rejoicing. She left her complaint with God. Lord, it's in your hands. And she had a, a change of heart because she believed at that point, God, it's up to you. You're going to do what you want to do. I'm going to trust you that you'll answer that prayer. And so not to be like the children of Israel where, spoken by the writer of Hebrews in Hebrews chapter 3, where he says, Take heed, brethren, lest there be in any of you an evil heart of unbelief in departing from the living God. And so we can have unbelief that sort of hinders the power and the control of God in our life because we're not believing what he's doing. And, and it takes that it's a fuddle, so, uh, uh, subtle form of, of not seeing God as all-powerful as he could be and not in control of our life as he could be. That would be a first little snippet for us to see. There's a second one, though, and we need to keep moving. So the second one is this. The first one, if you will, was praying but not believing. The second one is promising but not fulfilling. Turn to Matthew chapter 21 for this one. 
Matthew chapter 21. Just little vignettes of Scripture here that we're looking at tonight. Matthew chapter 21. Promising but not fulfilling. We promise, but we don't do what we say. And this is that story of a certain man having two sons. And he told them to go to work. Look at verse 28, Matthew 21, 28. But what think ye? A certain man had two sons. And he came to the first and said, Son, go work today in my, in my vineyard. He answered and said, I will not. But afterward, he repented and went. In your notes there, the first son, he resisted, then repented. He resisted, then he repented. So the first part was, hey, I'm, I'm in rebellion, but ultimately I'm going to be in obedience. I'm going to let my, my authority have control. I want, I want to listen to my dad. He put himself under the control of the master, even though initially he said, I'm not doing that. And he turned around and ended up doing it. As we keep reading, though, you read at verse 30, and he came to the second and said, Likewise. And he answered and said, I go, sir, and went not. I go, sir, and went not. Now, in your notes there, the second son respected, but then rebelled. So you've got son number one resisting, but then repenting. The second son respecting, but then rejecting, in verse 30. So he agreed to the task for all to see in public, but then in private, he quietly just rejected his father's directive. And that would be a subtle or maybe even not so subtle form of rejecting God's control. Notice he said, I go, sir. Sir here is a title of respect. It's a title of honor. Yes, sir, I'll do exactly what you say. And to those who heard that, it looked like, wow, then there's, a, there's an honorable son. He's going to do what he's supposed to do. It's a title of honor. But he was giving reverence to his father's face, but behind his back, he decided to do his own thing. And so he made a promise and may have even had good intentions initially, but what happened was the end result was an unfulfilled promise. He wanted to be in control of his own life and said, well, you know what, I'm not doing that. Yeah, I said I'd go, but I'm reneging. I'm not going to go. I'm not going to do it. I'm not going to go serve in the field. I don't feel like doing that. So, Jesus asks a pointed question in verse 31, Wherefore, whether of them twain did the will of the Father? They said unto him the first, Jesus saith unto them, Verily I say unto you that the publican and the harlots go into the kingdom of God before you. So which one did the will of the Father? In other words, which one surrendered to God's authority? Which one surrendered to God's control over them? Well, it was clearly the, the first one, right? It was the first one. Um, it's a way of saying, which one pleased the Father? Which one did the will of their Heavenly Father? And so it was the man who initially said, no, I'm not going to go, but then he repented and went. And sometimes, folks, we can do that, say, you know what? I'm, just, I'm not going to church today. But we come to ourselves and say, you know, I really need to be there. 
I can't, I can't stay away from church. Or I just, I gotta get out and I gotta meet with this person who's too busy to, to spend time with the Lord this morning, so I'll just pray my way to work. And so we pray, but we miss that, maybe that intimate time with him that we would typically have. And so the application to this is we have to ask ourselves at times, which one are we? So have you ever told God that you would witness to someone and then you didn't? Did you ever have that spirit's prompting in you to say, you know, I want you to give this person a track? That's happened to me four times this week. On Monday, I was out and about different places, and I sensed the Spirit of God saying, look, you've got to tell them about Easter. Invite them out to Easter. Invite them to Easter. Get them, get them lonely. So, so in my mind, I'm thinking, okay, how am I going to fit that in in our conversation? What am I going to say? Is now the right time to say it? Is now the right time to say it? Lord, it'd be easier to just kind of leave something behind. But each time, the Spirit of God's prompting me, invite them to Easter. And so four or five times, and everyone said, oh, thank you, that's nice. When is that? Or whatever. It was, it was a, a pleasant response. But it was the Spirit of God prompting, and I didn't want to not allow the Lord to have control when I sensed His prompting to do that. But sometimes, if we're honest, we don't always follow those promptings, do we? And it can easily happen to us. So we made a commitment to the Lord about tithing, and then we stopped doing it along the way for whatever reason or about giving up an old habit, but then we take it back and it gains control over us again, or determining to be more diligent in prayer and our devotional time, but then we slack off a little bit. Well, the point is, it's never too late to repent and return. Like, that can happen, like, tonight. And so we don't want to let ourselves so often, folks, and when people are struggling with a, with a life-dominating sin or an addiction, what happens is they just throw in the towel and say, you know what, I ask God to forgive me, but then I go and I do it tomorrow, and then I think, oh, Lord, I'm guilty. I can't even ask you to forgive me again because I know tomorrow I'm probably going to do it again. And so they just even stop coming to the Lord and asking for cleansing and asking for strength because they're so defeated because it's been with them for so long. And that's how the devil gets the upper hand thinking this person thinks, well, I'm never going to get out of it. I'm just going to keep doing it. And so because of that, it's a self-fulfilling prophecy rather than saying, no, God wants me to continue to come and knock and seek and ask, Lord, forgive, forgive me, and not grow weary in doing that. And so to be obedient and give God control and not take it back because of guilt or just something else coming up or we just don't feel like we're worthy or just failed before in the past, so that's what happens, and so we, we surrender to that thing. It's never too late to repent and to change course, and that's what the first son did, the one who pleased the father. I'm not going, but he repented, and then he did. So, men, for us, it's like loving our wives and not quitting on that. Or ladies, honoring your husband and not quitting on that. Well, because they did something that irritated us or that was unkind or it was, that gives us reason to say, you know what, I'm just pulling back. I'm tired of trying. They'll never change. Can I, can I give you that as the counseling pastor tonight, don't let that stop you to continue to pursue your spouse. Stay at it.
stay at it. Why? Well, because we made a vow before the Lord. We made a vow before the Lord that we were going to be to love and to cherish till death us do part. And so the Bible says it's better to not vow a vow at all than to vow and not pay, right? And so he says, stay faithful, stay at it. Whether you think they're deserving or not, that's not the most important thing. I want you to be obedient to me. And in obedience, God can bring blessing out of that for, for all of us. And so in your notes there, I put that verse in Deuteronomy 23, 21. It's also repeated sort of in Ecclesiastes 5, 5. When thou shalt vow a vow unto the Lord thy God, thou shalt not slack to pay it. For the Lord thy God will surely require it of thee, and it would be sin in thee. Stay with your commitments. So in your notes there, how about this statement as a sort of an axiom? God is less upset about a sin followed by repentance than a spoken promise followed by rebellion. God is less upset about a sin followed by repentance than a, than a spoken promise followed by rebellion. Now, he's upset about all sin, but what I'm saying is the end result is that there's repentance and restoration, whereas when there's a promise but rebellion, it ends in rebellion. And until they repent, there's no remedy for that. The end result makes all the difference. God, all the difference. God demands full obedience, not idle and unfulfilled promises. And so that's the second one. So, so the first one is we've got praying but not believing. Then we've got promising but not fulfilling. And third but not less important is this, running but not resting. And, and with this we'll close. Turn to John chapter 13. Running but not resting. A third snippet here, John chapter 13. In this passage, Jesus was preparing his disciples for his departure and death. He's telling them that they cannot go with him right now, but he will go and prepare a place for them. He says that in chapter 14. But Peter is not satisfied with the level of information given by Jesus, nor his non-involvement in Jesus' short-term future ministry. Peter wants more, and so he's going to protest a little bit. He doesn't take no for an answer from Jesus, so he continues to press him with questions. And so Peter makes three statements here that showed his desire to run ahead rather than to rest in Jesus' plan. So he runs and doesn't rest, and that can be a control issue or lack of control, giving God control. Verse 33 says, Little children, yet a little while I am with you. Ye shall seek me, and I, and as I said unto the, unto the Jews, whither I go, you cannot come. So now I say unto you, look, I'm going away. And where I'm going, you can't come. Well, you know, Peter's response to that, you know Peter, he has that self-will, and he, he doesn't want to take no for an answer. And so Peter has to have his response. If you look down at verse 36, it says, Simon Peter said unto him, Lord, whither goest thou? That's his first response. In your notes there, letter A, Peter says to Jesus' you know, statement, I'm going away, and where I go, you can't come. So, so Peter asks, well, where are you going, Lord? I want to go with you. Where are you going, Lord? I want to go with you. Why can I not follow you in verse 37? So where are you going? Why can't I follow? Why won't you let me be a part of the next segment of your ministry, Lord? Why are you keeping me back? 
I'm sure Peter was thinking, I can do it, Lord. I know I can be with you. We can, we can conquer this thing. I can serve you wherever you go. You'll see, I'll be a great big blessing to you because I, I just want to be with you wherever you go. I've learned a lot over the past three years, and I won't make the same mistakes as I've made before. Come on, Lord, let's go turn the world upside down together. We'll put those proud legalistic Pharisees in their place and bring Israel back to a state of glory again. And so, sort of trying to make his case for why Jesus shouldn't go away from him, not seeing the big picture. And so we appreciate P Peter's passion, but at the same time, there has to be a place where we allow the Lord to have control and not try to usurp that from God's plan. And so P Peter starts with his, you know, sort of discontent about why are you going away now? Where are you going? Why can't we come with you? And so on and so forth. And so that's the first thing in 36, 37. He says, Peter saith unto him, Lord, why cannot I follow thee now? I don't understand. Lord, don't make me wait. That sounds familiar to any of us. Lord, don't make me wait. I don't want to wait. None of us want to wait, do we? Or Lord, don't forget about me. Don't leave me behind. Did I do something wrong, Lord, that you're not taking me with you? Where are you going? I want to just come. Why can't we just settle this thing? Am I being demoted? Do you, do you not want me to, to, to be with you? Do you want me to be by myself? What, what are you doing here, Lord? I can handle it to be with you. I'm ready to go to the next assignment. In fact, Lord, I'm willing to go to death with you. I'm willing to die for you. That's what he says there at the end of verse 37. I will lay down my life for thy sake. And that's the third statement he makes there in your notes there. I will lay down my life for your sake, Lord. So Peter fell into the trap of putting too much confidence in his flesh. He wanted to let Jesus know that he could control his own will, his own emotions, his own uh, destiny. And he would follow Christ to death if need be. And, and, of course, we appreciate that faith of Peter wanting to be willing to do that, but we know in reality Peter failed in that regard as well. He could never fall into such a horrible pit of denying the Lord. Lord, I'll never do that. And yet that's exactly as we know what Peter did. So Peter was unable to just accept the fact that Jesus just wanted him to accept that he was saying and listening to his instructions. Peter, I just want you to know that I'm going away, but I'll come back. I want you to just accept that. There's a bigger plan that I have. And so, but Peter felt that he had to do something. He had to be involved. He had to fix the problem. Lord, no, that's, that's not the best thing to do. Going away is not the best thing right now. Let's all regroup and, and, and take the city by storm, so to speak. And so Peter had this sort of control issue, if you will. And so how do we respond to that, or what's the application for us? Well, have you ever felt that way? You know you need to trust the Lord, but you just can't give Him your burden sometimes. I got to handle this. I'm just used to worrying about the finances. I'm worrying about the job situation. I'm worried about my kids. I'm worried about my health issue. I, I, I got to wear that burden. I got I to gotta hold on to it. You have to control it and you have to master it. You, you know in your head that Christ is always there, 
But to just let it go is hard. To just rest in the Lord sometimes is a difficult task because in our humanness, we want to hold on to it. And we want to fix it. And the stress you're under cannot be helped. It's just a part of your circumstances in life, whether it's money pressures or work stresses or health issues or people problems, family struggles, lack of unity, feeling distant from God at times. In many ways, we're no different from Peter. And we let those things just sort of weigh on us. And we don't give it to the Lord like we should. That's the issue of control that we're talking about here. And despite all your worries and stresses and cares that you've been carrying for years, God says, hey, it's time to let me have control of those things. Don't be so self-sufficient. Give it over to me. Come unto me, all ye that labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. So it's time to stop running in your own strength and begin resting in the peace and the power of God. And so there in your notes, letter D is, don't be troubled, Jesus is saying there. He comes to Peter after Peter's resisting. So Jesus says, Peter, you're going to deny me three times in verse 38. But then he continues right on through. Pretend that the, the chapter break is not there. Then he says to Peter and the rest, let not your heart be troubled. You believe in God, believe also in me. Don't be troubled. It means, Peter, don't be agitated. Don't be stirred up. Don't be bothered by this. It must needs happen. You just rest in me. Letter E, I go to prepare a place for you. I got this under control. I have a plan for, for your future, Peter, but you got to trust me here. I'm going to prepare a place for you, so yes, I can't take you with me now. you got to accept that. He has all the details of the future in his control, and it will be most wonderful place of comfort and rest. So, Peter, trust me. And then letter F, he says, I will come again and receive you unto myself in chapter 14, verse 3. And if I go to prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you unto myself, that where I am, there ye may be also. And so he says, I'm going to come back for you, Peter. I'm not just going to leave you alone but you have to accept that plan. Don't let your heart be troubled. Don't get all upset. I go to prepare a place, and then I'm coming back to get you. All is well. God's in control. So there they are. Things that we do to keep God from having control. Praying, but not believing. Promising, but not fulfilling. And running, but not resting. Those are easy things that all of us can fall into at any given time. Let's be careful not to let those things just sort of sneak into our lives subtly and then take back control of God. So the conclusion is this. Control can be a subtle thing, but can also be a deep-seated within us. And so it's time to stop running and begin resting in Christ. It's time to stop just promising and start fulfilling your commitments to Christ. And it's time to start believing when you're praying. So give the Lord complete control even in the subtle things of life. Control. We all need it. We all want it. But God ultimately wants to be Lord over 
our lives so we give him control. Let's give him that this week, shall we? Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the word of God. Thank you for the truths and these little snippets that we can learn, the humanness of people, so that we can learn how not to have the same mistakes but to avoid them. And Lord, I pray that even the rest of this week and on into the future that you would help us to recognize these things when we want to take our own will back and control our own lives rather than give things over to you. Uh, even in the subtlety of all of these little issues, Lord, help us to uh, truly rely upon you, trust you for the control of our lives because you are a good God. You care about us and you have a, a future plan for us. Help us to rest in that plan and trust you day to day with our lives. Bless us as we part. Give us a great week serving you. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So if you have a Bible, please open to Philippians chapter 1. Philippians chapter 1, in this great chapter, Paul says, the things that have happened unto me, the good things and the bad things, even the imprisonment, have happened to spread the gospel. And so Paul's imprisonment in Rome, it led to a spiritual revival. Uh, not just hundreds, but thousands of people came to Christ. We learned last week that God will let some things happen to you, to me, some things happen to us so that we can meet new people and we can share the gospel. Two in our church heard that message last Sunday and they ended up in the hospital. They weren't expecting it, but they ended up in the hospital. One man led a nursing student to Christ from his hospital bed and another shared her faith and passed out several tracts. God brought them spiritual joy even while they were suffering physical pain. My message today is entitled, How to Get the Most Out of Life and to Prepare for Death. Would you please stand with me as I read from Philippians chapter 1. Philippians 1 verse 21. For to me to live is Christ, and to die is gain. But if I live in the flesh, this is the fruit of my labor. Yet what I shall choose, I what not, that is, I know not. For I am in a strait betwixt two, having a desire to depart and to be with Christ, which is far better, nevertheless, to abide in the flesh is more needful for you. And having this confidence, I know that I shall abide and continue with you all for your furtherance and joy of faith. That your rejoicing may be more abundant in Jesus Christ for me by my coming to you again. May we pray. Our Father, we thank you for the word of God. We thank you for the truth we find in this passage and for the message you want to give to each one of us. Lord, would you open our hearts. May the Spirit of God speak to each one. If there be someone that is not sure where they'll spend eternity when they die, touch their heart, convict them, draw them to yourself. I pray for each Christian that we will learn how to live for our Savior. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. Thank you. You may be seated. Let me, let me give you a list of books this morning, a list of books that I highly recommend that you don't read. 
right? That's right. Uh, here are some books that, that you should not read. Don't read these books unless you like to be lied to. Here, here's the list. To Heaven and Back. My Journey to Heaven. Visiting Heaven. My Time in Heaven. Waking Up in Heaven. 90 Minutes in Heaven. Uh, two things all of these books have in common. One, they all disagree with each other. Hmm, that's interesting. And two, they all contradict the Bible. You see, the Bible says that when you die and you leave this world, you're not going to return until you return with the Lord Jesus Christ at his second coming. Now, most of us hear a voice inside that says, I'm not going to die. I'm not going to die. At least I'm not going to die soon. I hope. I hope. And for you old timers, you remember, you remember, unless you get this pain in your chest and then you grab and say, oh, it's the big one, Elizabeth. It's the big one. <laughs> but we also have another voice and that voice says, I am going to die. I am going to die. Time is running out. Another birthday another anniversary, another child or grandchild or worse, another great-grandchild. Great Scott, death may be nearer than I realized. You know, sometimes a uh, near-death experience wakes us up to the reality that we are going to die. Today, this morning, Pastor Phillips of Triumph Baptist Church in Virginia is going to baptize a man. This man has come faithfully to his church for years, twice a year. I mean, every Christmas and every Easter, this guy has come. And his wife prays for him. But six weeks ago, something happened. You see, six weeks ago, he was cutting down a tree, and he almost lost his life. And he came to church six weeks ago Sunday. It wasn't even Easter. But in his heart, he knew... I'm going to die. And that day he listened to the message and he received Jesus Christ as his Savior and he was born again. And today, this morning, Pastor Phillips is going to baptize him. And so sometimes that's what it takes, a, a near-death experience, a, a maybe an illness, a, maybe the loss of a friend or a loved one in death, or, or possibly, possibly you hear something in the news and you ask, uh, what if I were at that bank? What if I were at that shopping center uh, when some nut started shooting? Uh, what if my yogurt or my burger was laced with cyanide? That's why I stick with Reese's Pieces and ice cream. <laughs> Have you ever heard of anyone poisoning ice cream? I mean, some foods are sacred and you just don't do that. <laughs> As you read the Bible, we are reminded again and again that life is short and death can come at any time. Look with me in your notes. Proverbs 27.1, Boast not thyself of tomorrow, for thou knowest not what a day may bring forth. Psalm 89.47, Remember how short my time is. Moses wrote, Teach us to number our days that we may apply our hearts unto wisdom. I mean, we can't help but think, am I getting the most out of life? Uh, am I prepared to die? Am I prepared to meet God? These are the thoughts that went through the mind of the Apostle Paul as he awaited trial before Caesar. Look with me in your notes. Paul's crime, his crime, 
preaching Jesus Christ. That's his crime. Maximum penalty, death by decapitation. His earthly judge, Caesar, ruler of the Roman Empire. Now, it may have been Nero. Caesar could do nothing to Paul. I mean, absolutely nothing without permission from God himself. Friends, we need to remember that no one can do anything to us unless God allows it to come into our life. I mean, it may be hard, and it may be bad, and it may be a problem, and it may be a trial, and it may be a temptation. In the next six verses, we will learn Paul's views about life and death. And they've really spoken to my heart. And it seems like the older that I get, the better I understand what he is saying. These verses show us how to get the most out of life. They show us how to prepare for death. It's as if Paul is saying, the only people who know how to live are those who know first how to die. Our beliefs about death determine what we believe about how to live. So what do you believe about dying? Do you believe it's all over? That your existence and consciousness just, just ends, ceases? Are we just like an ant? Are we just like an insect? When we die, is it all over? Do we go to sleep? Is there a second chance? Or are we rewarded for our service to Christ? Look at the box at the bottom of page one. There's a question there. Where will I be five seconds after I die? Do you know the answer to that question? Where will I be five seconds after I die? Will it be heaven? Will it be hell? Uh, will it be somewhere else? Where will you be? I mean, the real you. So here is the great debate in verse 21. For to me to live is Christ... And to die is gain. Now, for a long time, I misunderstood this verse. We sang Philippians 1.21 today. I used to sing it 40 years ago as a teenager. For me to live as Christ, to die is gain. To know his word and walk his narrow way. There is no peace, no joy, no thrill like walking in his will. For me to live as Christ, to die is gain. And from that song as a teenager, I mistakenly thought it meant I'm going to die to self and live for Christ. I'm to put to death my old man and my selfishness, and I'm to live a new life in Christ. Now, that's Galatians 2.20. That's what Dan sang to us uh, this morning. By application, that is true. We all are to die to self and live for Christ. But what did Paul mean when he wrote 21, verse 21? Well, it's pretty easy to figure out if you read it in the context of verses 22 and 23. There was a great debate going on in his heart. To live or to die? Which would he prefer? Now in Shakespeare's famous play, Hamlet, same question. To be or not to be? Can you finish it? That, that's the question. There it is again, the great debate, to live or die. For Hamlet, he weighed the evils of life against the evils of death. For Paul, he weighed the blessings of life versus the blessings that death will bring. Hamlet says, which is worse, life with all of its sorrows or death which hold terrors unknown? Paul says, which is better, the joys of life or the joys of death? Paul says both are sweet. Both are sweet. Paul was good to live 
or to die. Look at the top of page 2, verse 21. For me to live is Christ. It's a wonderful and joyous to live for Christ. I mean, Paul says it's sweet, but to die is gain. That is to physically die. If life is sweet, then death will be what? Sweeter. Do you believe that? Gain is always more of the same thing. If to live is Christ, then to die and gain would be more of Christ, to be in the presence of Christ. And this is what Paul is thinking. This is what I really want. So how to get the most out of life? Now, to some people, life is money. To some people, life is fame. It's pleasure. It's measured by sensations. It's measured by scenery, the pleasant sounds, the fragrant scents, delicious flavors, the ecstatic thrill of driving fast, or sports, or immoral sex, or having a brush with death. And Paul says, that's not life. Living for a thrill is not really living. That's not the purpose of your life. If you live that way, you're wasting your life. And so how to get the most out of life? This is what he says. Sincerely receive Jesus Christ as your Savior, that if thou shalt confess with thy mouth the Lord Jesus and believe in thine heart that God hath raised him from the dead, thou shalt be saved. And when you choose to follow Christ as your Savior, as your Lord, as your Master, as your Boss, you truly become alive. And until that moment, you're just existing. I want you to think about the thousands of, of cemeteries all over the world and the millions of people that have, have, have been born. They lived, they died. And you have to ask, did they fulfill the purpose for which God created them? Did they live in God's will? Did you hear, ever hear the poem of Solomon Grundy? Solomon Grundy. Born on Monday, baptized on Tuesday, married on Wednesday, took ill on Thursday, grew worse on Friday, died on Saturday, buried on Sunday. That's the end of Solomon Grundy. All right? uh, life is passing. It, it's, it's passing way too fast. And so today, today is the day to receive Christ. And then surrender to follow Christ as your Lord. Christ is our life. I want you to see how many times Jesus spoke about life. He, he made Christ your life. He said, I am the bread of life. He said, I am the living water. I am come that they might have life and that they might have it more abundantly. I am the resurrection and what? The life. He that believeth in me, though he were dead, yet shall he live. I am the way, the truth, and the what? The life, I hold the keys of life and death in my hand. Jesus is life. He spoke and life began. Now in verse 22, he says, but if I live in the flesh, there, this is the fruit of my labor. There is a reward for Christians, for our labor. If we live for Christ, Jesus said there is more to life than this life. He says there is an afterlife. What kind of preparation are you making for the next life? What kind of retirement plan will you have in heaven? Hey, do you have any IRAs up in glory? So how to get the most out of life? Sincerely receive Christ as your Savior. Surrender to follow Christ as your Lord. And then look on, on page three of your notes. Seek to be like Christ. Live like Christ, act like Christ, think like Christ. Philippians 2.5, let this mind be in you which was in Christ Jesus. 
I mean pursue Christ-likeness the way an Olympic athlete pursues the finish line. I press toward the mark for the prize of the high calling of God in Christ Jesus. Make his goals your goals. Glorify God. Share Christ with others. Resist the temptations of sin. Put your selfishness to death. I mean, if you really want to live life to the fullest, yes, yes, stop and smell the roses and give glory to God. Look at the amazing sunsets we have here in Pennsylvania and praise God. Enjoy a tasty meal and thank God for creating food and your enjoyment of it. Hug your family and praise God. Greet your brothers and sisters in Christ and thank God for giving us a church family with a sweet spirit. So how to get the most out of life. Sincerely receive Christ as your Savior. Surrender to follow God's will and seek to be like Christ. So, okay, now, how to prepare for death. How to prepare for death. Uh, first of all, you need to believe the truth about death. There is only one reliable source of information about what happens when you die. The Bible. Science can't help. False religion can't help. Cults can't help. Only the Word of God will give you the truth about life after death. The only book that has that truth. And so look with me at verse 23. 23. I am in a strait betwixt two, having a desire to depart and to be with Christ, which is far better. Underline the phrase, to depart and to be with Christ. What does that mean? Well, first of all, let's be clear what it does not mean. And so here are the popular false teachings about death that are not true. Number one, death is not soul sleep. Death is not soul sleep. This is taught by the Seventh-day Adventists. They teach that when you die, you go to sleep until Judgment Day. That's not true. They misinterpret 1 Thessalonians chapter 4 that says that death gives the appearance that the body is asleep at death. Now, how, how do you know that our consciousness does not simply fall asleep when you die. Two reasons, the Old Testament and the New Testament. In the Old Testament, it talks about these saints that were gathered to their people. It talks about Samuel, 1 Samuel 28, and he was alive and he was conscious and he had memory. In the New Testament, you find, you find Jesus in the Mount of Transfiguration. Two Old Testament saints appear with him. Who are they? Moses and Elijah. And they're talking. They're awake. Jesus on the cross saves the thief beside him, and he says, Today thou shalt be with me in paradise. He didn't say, Today you're going to die and go to sleep. He didn't say that. Today you're going to be awake. You're going to be conscious. You're going to be with me in paradise. Soul sleep is a lie. It's not true. Death does not take us, number two, to purgatory. It doesn't take us to purgatory. I once asked a priest, if you died today, do you know that you would go to heaven or do you have some doubt? Do you know what he said? He said, I can't go to heaven until I have gone to purgatory. Now listen, listen, for a few hundred or a few thousand years to burn off the impurities from my soul. He said, that's why I pray for people who died to help get them out of purgatory faster. You know, here's some good news. Here's some good news. And you can spread. Purgatory is empty. You know that? Right now, purgatory is empty because purgatory does not exist. 
Purgatory is not in my Bible, but purgatory is not in the Roman Catholic Bible either. It doesn't exist. When you die, you don't go to purgatory and you don't go to sleep. Number three, death does not bring a second chance. It is appointed that a man wants to die and after this, the judgment. Oh no, God's going to give me a second chance. No, he won't. Now is the time to receive Christ. Number four, and millions of young Americans are jumping on this false bandwagon. Death is not another step in reincarnation or nirvana. Reincarnation is a fairy tale propagated by demons. It's not true. And they say that if your last thoughts were carnal or worldly, then you will be reincarnated into a lower life form. And if your last thoughts were positive or spiritual, you'll be reincarnated into a higher life form. That's a fairy tale. It's not true. And if you really believed it, then how can you eat? You eat the burger, you might be eating Uncle Harry. What about salad? I mean, plants are living things too. You're kind of stuck. You want to eat your relatives? <laughs> Death is not another step in reincarnation or nirvana. It's a lie. It's not true. Death is not the end of our consciousness. Many believe it's all over at death. This is the logical conclusion of evolution. The problem is that evolution is not logical. There is microevolution, variation within species. That is what Darwin observed in the late 1800s. And then there is the theory of macroevolution. That is, changes from one species to another. Now, science has observation and repeatability. Macroevolution has never been observed. It's never been repeated. There is no evidence for it because it has never happened, ever. Just because a chameleon lizard or a toad can change colors does not mean evolution is true. You can lay out in the sun for six hours and change colors. That is not evidence of evolution. It just means you baked in the sun and you forgot your sunscreen. Death is not the end of our consciousness. So, so those are the false teachings about death. What's the truth? The truth is found here in the Bible. The true teaching about death, we find it in verse 23, to depart and to be with Christ. Let's see how this word is used. It means to move from, from one location to another. The word depart was used by soldiers. It meant to take down your tent and move on. Oh, what a great picture of a Christian's death. Sailors used the word. It meant to loose a ship and set sail. Uh, a judge used it. It meant to set a prisoner free. And Paul used it. It meant for a Christian's soul and spirit uh, to go to heaven. So death is departure. Departure of your spirit being, your personality, your consciousness to go and be with Christ. Look at the bottom of page three. Uh, uh, verses that I've shared several hundred times at home-going services at funerals. Therefore, we are always confident knowing that whilst we are at home in the body, we are absent from the body. We are confident, I say, and willing rather to be absent from the body and to be present with the Lord. Now we understand why the psalmist would say, precious in the sight of the Lord is the death of his saints. 
So how, how do we prepare for death? How, how do we best prepare to meet the Lord? Well, we're back at the same thing again, number one, and that is receive Jesus Christ as your Savior and Lord. Jesus spoke more about heaven, he spoke more about hell than anyone else in the Bible. Here's just one reference, Matthew 25, 46. And these shall go away into everlasting punishment, but the righteous into life eternal. The teaching of, of hell is truly a debatable, hot topic. The world, the intellectuals, the secular professors, the media, they mock the belief that there is a hell. But you know, all of their mocking and all of their jokes and all of their ridicule will not make hell go away. Hell is a divine truth. Hell was created for the devil and his fallen angels. Mankind only goes to hell if they reject God's love and God's forgiveness. Now look with me at verse 24. Nevertheless, to abide in the flesh is more needful for you. You see, if, if Paul would have gone to heaven, if he would have died before the second missionary journey, all the people at Philippi would not have heard the message of salvation. They would not have been saved. It was, it was needful, it was helpful for Paul to be alive, go to them, preach the gospel to them. And now he says, it's going to be needful, it's going to be helpful if I, if I am released from the prison and I come back to you and I share God's word that more people can be saved and you can grow in your faith. It's more needful for me to come to you. Now, how many of you ever heard of the old radio preacher J. Vernon McGee? Would you raise your hands? Oh, man, lots of you, lots of you. When he had cancer, a letter came from a lady who said, Dear Brother McGee, I know that everybody is praying that you will get well, but I'm praying that the Lord will take you home because to be with Christ is far better. He wrote back and said, Please stop praying for me. <laughs> he, he said, would you mind? Let the Lord decide about that. He said, I'd like to stay here a little bit longer and keep teaching God's word. That, that, that same decision and tension that Paul had. Okay, so how to prepare for death, and that is receive Jesus as your Savior. And Lord, number two, serve Christ with all of your heart. Look at the uh, beginning of verse 22. And if I live in the flesh, if I'm still here preparing for death, this is the fruit of my labor. Verse 25, and having this confidence, I know that I shall abide and continue with you all for your furtherance and joy of faith. Every day brings us one step closer to heaven. Every day is one step closer to seeing Christ Christ to give an account for my life of how I lived for Jesus. Are you preparing to meet God? Do you want to hear? Do you want to hear from the Savior when he examines your life? Do you want to hear, well done, thou good and faithful servant? That means you got to do something and you got to do it well. You have to do it with all your heart. You have to do with excellence. Whether you're a greeter, you work in the nursery, you sing in the choir, you teach a class, you plant flowers, you clean up the building, you, you exercise your spiritual gift, whatever you do, you're doing it for Christ. For Christ. This is how you prepare to die by living for Christ. 
serving Christ with all of your heart. Number three, joyfully build up other Christians. Joyfully build up other Christians. Look at the end of verse 25. He says, I shall abide and continue with you, with you all for your furtherance and joy of faith, that your rejoicing may be more abundant in Jesus Christ for me by my coming to you again. Paul says, if I'm released, I'm coming to you. If I'm released, I'm coming to you. My coming is going to bring you spiritual joy. When I come to church, now you came to church today. Did you, did you bring anybody joy by your presence today? So here are some questions I want you to consider. Do you build up Christians or do you tear them down? Do you encourage others or do you discourage them? Do you bring others joy or do you bring them grief? Do your words, your actions, your attitude, your singing, your service, does, it, does all of that bring joy to your brothers and sisters in Christ right here, right now, today in this church? Paul says, when you see me, I promise, I promise, I will bring the joy of the Lord to you. We are going to rejoice together. He says your joy is going to be abundant. It's going to be great. It's going to grow. That's the word he used, isn't it? Verse 26, abundant joy. You know, that's the kind of Christian I want to be. That's the kind of pastor I want to be. I want to bring the joy of the Lord to you. But pastor, I don't like everything I see at church. I don't like everything I hear at church. Do you think it's a perfect church? There's not a church in the world with the perfect pastor. There's not a church in the world with perfect Christians and perfect people. We are nothing but sinners saved by grace. And so we got to be patient with one another. Do you think church is supposed to be a place where you get your way? We are not Burger King. <laughs> We're not Burger King where you have it your way and you get to order what you want. Yeah, well, I want my favorite sermon. I want my favorite song. I want my favorite seat. Wrong place. This is a church a soul-saving station, a hospital for sinners. And God in heaven mediates his church through his God-appointed leadership, through the plurality of pastors and deacons. And we have a purpose, and that purpose is to fulfill the great commission. It is his mission. And you can have joy in doing that, keeping the main thing the main thing, even if you're in prison. Even if you're in prison even if you don't get your way. So the spiritually mature Christians are more concerned about bringing people to Christ than they are about getting their own way. So how to get the most out of life? Uh, receive Christ, follow his will, seek to be like Christ. How to prepare for death? Again, receive Christ. Serve him with all of your heart. Joyfully build up other Christians. And when you live like that, others will want what you have. But if, if your face looks like you've been sucking on lemons because you're so distressed and you're so discouraged and you're so depressed and you're so upset, who, who wants that kind of faith? No one. And so Philippians 1.21 really is a test of, it's a test of who you love. 
for me to live is blank and to die is blank. And you get to fill in the blank. For me to live is money and to die is to leave it all behind. For me to live is fame and to die is to be forgotten. For me to live is power and to die is to lose it all. For me to live is pleasure and to die is is pain or for me to live as Christ. And, and to die, to die is gain. It's more of Christ. It's to be in the presence of Christ. And yes, it's better. It's better. Oh, what a wonderful way to live when you understand what God says. May we pray. Father, thank you for the word of God, for the message that Paul has shared with us. I pray that each one here today will know for certain that, that heaven is their home, that their sins have been forgiven, that one day their life is going to end and they're going to step through a doorway to heaven or to hell. With their heads bowed or eyes closed, you'd say, Pastor Wendell, I know that when I die, I am going to depart and be with Christ. I know it for certain because I have been born again into the family of God. I am a follower of Jesus Christ. By faith, I received the gift of God, and I'm saved. If you know that, would you hold your hand up high all over this congregation? Oh, God bless you, God bless you. You may put your hands down. You're here today, you, you say, I'm not sure if I'd go to heaven. I have some doubt. Or maybe you raised your hand. I want you to know that God offers a gift to you today, the gift of Salvation, the gift of forgiveness. Whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. If you'd like to receive his gift of forgiveness today, right now, it's not about joining the church or getting baptized. It's about receiving Jesus Christ, asking him to forgive your sins, believing that he died and rose again for you, and, and really just trusting him and not your own good works. If you'd like to do that today, I'll lead you in the salvation prayer. Anyone at all, I would like to receive Jesus as my Lord and Savior. I would like to ask him to come into my heart and my life. I'm not sure if heaven's my home. God brought you here today to hear this good news, this wonderful message for you. Just simply raise your hand, and I'll lead you in the prayer. You can pray right where you're seated. You can pray sincerely. You can pray silently. God will hear the prayer of your heart. You say, Pastor, I want to be saved today. I want to receive Christ. Just hold your hand up high for a moment. Anyone at all. Anyone at all, I want to be saved. God bless you. You may put your hand down. If you'd like to pray with me right now where you're seated. Dear Lord, I know that I'm a sinner. I ask you to forgive me of all of my sin. I believe Jesus died for me and rose again. Please come into my heart and become my Lord and Savior. Please save me today. Now, Christian, may I ask you, what are you living for? Who are you living for? Who do you love most? If it's not Christ, you're wasting your life. You're wasting your days. And at the judgment seat of Christ, you'll be so disappointed with tears. Today's the day to choose to follow Christ. 
with all your heart, mind, and soul. Father, bless our invitation. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. As we stand, we're going to sing that wonderful chorus, In My Life, Be Glorified. As we stand and sing, whatever decision you need to make, we invite you to come. We invite you to come. Maybe you want to pray at the altar. Maybe you want to pray in your seat. Maybe you want to speak to a pastor or a pastor's wife. It's your time. It's a public invitation. You come as we sing in my life. Samuel chapter 17. We are in a study on David, the only one called in the Bible, a man after God's own heart. And through the study, we have seen David's family tree. We've looked at his family heritage. Boaz and Ruth were his uh, great-grandparents. Further up that family tree, who will you find? You'll find Rahab, the forgiven prostitute who demonstrated great faith and hid the two Jewish spies. And God recorded, he recorded her courageous faith for us in Hebrews chapter 11. We also looked at David's family. David is the youngest of eight brothers, 1 Samuel chapter 16. God sent the prophet Samuel to Bethlehem to anoint a new king, the replacement of King Saul. But you know, if you go to 1 Chronicles 2, it says that Jesse had seven sons. By the time 1 Chronicles was written, apparently one of the brothers had died. You can trust your Bible. But sometimes you have to dig a little deeper to reconcile what you might think is a possible contradiction. Not so. No mistakes in your Bible. And then we see David the musician. Chapter 16, verse 23, came to pass when the evil spirit from God was upon King Saul that David took a harp and played with his hand so Saul was refreshed and was well and the evil spirit departed from him. We learned how important Christian music, godly music, is in the life of David and in our lives as well. Twice we're told in that chapter that David was a cunning player of the harp. That means he was skillful. It means he was proficient. He had a lot of time to practice while he watched his father's sheep out on the hillside. Do you know in every generation, God guides his people like David to write songs. The psalmist calls them new songs. And I'd like to play for you a new song. It was just written about six, uh, 13 years ago. Now, our church family has been blessed by Ron Hamilton and the Majesty uh, music team for over 30 years. I, I would encourage all of the young families uh, in our church to play the Patch the Pirate CDs to your children. I mean, again and again and again. It's a fun way to teach spiritual truth. It's a fun way to build character uh, into their lives. It's been a joy to have Patch the Pirate himself here several times over the years. With his advancing dementia, he no longer travels, and, and we will miss him. But he has produced some music videos, and th that's what you're going to see tonight. We hosted a, a live Patch the Pirate drama a couple years ago, and they showed some of their music videos then. And like David, uh, they have become cunning, cunning players or skillful with new technology, and that's a good thing. And so I'd like to show you two modern Davids that are musicians. Ron Hamilton partnered with evangelist Ben Everson to sing Bow the Knee. It's all a cappella, amazingly. It's a cappella. Listen closely to the words and enjoy the beauty of God's creation. Mm -hmm. 
privilege to come into God's presence just to linger with the one who set me free as I lift my eyes and see his awesome glory I remember who he is and bow the knee That blessing. <laughs> Amen. Let's open our Bibles now to 1 Samuel 17, and we come to see David as the giant slayer, or as one commentator calls it, uh, David and the dwarf. 
David and the Dwarf. Would you please stand with me as I read the most famous battle described in the Old Testament, actually just the introduction to it. And it was not between two armies. It was between two people. 1 Samuel chapter 17 and in verse 1. Now the Philistines gathered together their armies to battle and were gathered together at Shokah, which belongeth to Judah, and pitched between Shokah and Ezekah and Ephes de Mim. And Saul and the men of Israel were gathered together and pitched by the valley of Elah and set the battle in array against the Philistines. And the Philistines stood on a mountain on the one side, and Israel stood on a mountain on the other side. And there was a valley between them. And there went out a champion out of the camp of the Philistines named Goliath of Gath, whose height was six cubits and a span. And he had a helmet of brass upon his head, and he was armed with a coat of mail, and the weight of the coat was 5,000 shekels of brass. And he had greaves of brass upon his legs and a target of brass between his shoulders. The staff of his spear was like a weaver's beam, and his spear's head weighed 600 shekels of iron, and one bearing a shield went before him. And he stood and cried unto the armies of Israel and said unto them, Why are ye come out to set your battle in array? Am not I a Philistine? And ye servants to Saul, choose you a man for you. Let him come down to me. If he be able to fight with me and to kill me, then will we be your servants. But if I prevail against him and kill him, then shall ye be our servants and serve us. And the Philistines said, I defy the armies of Israel this day. Give me a man that we may fight together. When Saul and all Israel heard those words of the Philistine, they were dismayed and greatly afraid. Now David was the son of that Ephrathite of Bethlehem, Judah, whose name was Jesse. And he had eight sons, and the man went among men for an old man in the days of Saul. And the three eldest sons of Jesse went and followed Saul to the battle. The names of the three sons that went to the battle were Eliab, the firstborn, and the next unto him was Abinadab, and the third, Shammah. And David was the youngest, and the three eldest followed Saul. But David went and returned from Saul to feed his father's sheep at Bethlehem. And the Philistine drew near morning and evening, and presented himself forty days. And Jesse said unto David his son, Take now for thy brethren an ephah of this parched corn and these ten loaves, and run to the camp to thy brethren, and carry these ten cheeses unto the captain of their thousand, and look how thy brethren, my sons, fare, and take their pledge. Father, thank you for uh, our time to have our faith built by a teenager who had strong faith 3,000 years ago. Lord, teach us to exercise the muscle of our faith to be strong for you and to slay the giants that come our way. If there be one that knows not Christ, tonight may they slay the giant of unbelief and be born again. 
strengthen all of your children. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. Thank you. You may be seated. David, the giant slayer. I want you to notice, first of all, his age. David's age, no more than 15 years old. Does it matter how old David was when he faced Goliath? And the answer is yes, yes. Since God made it a point to, to record King Saul's comment in verse 33, thou art not able to go against the Philistine to fight with him, for thou art but a youth, you're but a teenager, and he a man of war from his youth. We're going to discover that David, David is actually going to face three giants this day in this chapter. He's going to face the contempt of Goliath, his older brother Eliam, Eliab. He's going to face the mind of Goliath, Saul, his own king. And then he's actually going to face Goliath, the champion soldier. Now, if we are not careful, anyone over the age of 40 can quickly become a Goliath with our contempt toward those younger than us. We think, after all, what do these teenagers know? After all, what do these singles know? After all, uh, what do these young families in their 20s and 30s know? Young whippersnappers, they don't know what it was like back in the good old days when we walked to school in three feet of snow, uphill, both ways. You better be careful because you might be looking at the past through some rose-colored glasses about those good old days. My mom grew up in a home all the way through college that did not have indoor plumbing. Uh, my dad grew up in a house that did not have electricity. Uh, they ran a wire from the car battery into the house to play the radio which killed the battery, and then you couldn't start the car. Good old days. Sounds like old, but it doesn't sound so good. And if you view the past with those rose-colored glasses, you will be just like King Saul and Eliab, David's oldest brother. It is important for us to understand that David is a teenager. He is a teenager you will miss the power of God if you don't consider that as an integral part of the story. Why? God wants us to know that he can use young people. He can. In fact, Paul wrote to Timothy, let no man despise thy youth, but be thou an example of the believers in word and conversation and charity and spirit and faith and purity. 1 Timothy chapter 4, verse 12. But this is not just an Old Testament problem. This is not just a New Testament problem. This is a church history problem. So let's wind the clock back 150 years. Charles Spurgeon came to London as a mere lad, and no preacher received more criticism than the 19-year-old boy preacher as he was called and ridiculed. Becoming pastor of the historic New Park Street Baptist Church, he found the press virtually at war with him. The Ipswich Express said his sermons were, and I'm going to quote, filled with bad taste, vulgar, and theatrical. 
Spurgeon replied, I am perhaps vulgar, but it is not intentional, save that I must and will make the people listen. My firm conviction is that we have had quite enough polite preachers, and many require a change. God has owned me among the most degraded and offcasts. Let others serve their class. These are mine, and to them I must keep. Spurgeon saw the value of preaching to the common people in their own language in a way that captivated their interests. He was ridiculed for his humor. He said, oh, if you only knew how much I kept back. We can read Spurgeon's sermons, as many do. In fact, they are the most read sermons in the history of the world, and there is nothing vulgar about them. It was a false criticism. When Spurgeon was 20 years old, still single, he wrote to his future wife, Susanna Thompson, about an open-air sermon to a multitude. This is what he wrote. Yesterday... I climbed to the summit of a minister's glory. The Lord was with me, and the profoundest silence was observed. But, oh, the closeness. Never did mortal man receive a more enthusiastic ovation. I wonder that I am alive. Thousands of heads and hands were lifted, and cheer after cheer was given. Surely amid these adulations... I can hear the low rumbling of the advancing storm of reproach. But even this I can bear for the master's sake. You mean, you mean that after Spurgeon preached that people applauded and people raised their hands and people cheered and cheered? Yep. Young whippersnapper, who does he think he is? He's only 20 years old. Do you really want to be criticizing what God is doing? Today we call him the prince of preachers. Eliab and Saul were both wrong on criticizing David's motives and his youth. So how old was David? How old was David? Well, he is the youngest of Jesse's eight sons, right? Now to be an Israelite soldier, how old do you have to be? Numbers chapter 14, one, uh, Numbers 1, verses 45. So were all those that were numbered of the children of Israel by the house of their fathers from 20 years old and upward, all that were able to go forth to war. So we have our answer. Uh, to be a soldier in the army of Israel, you had to be at least what? 20 years old. Three of David's brothers are among the Jewish army. Verse 13, Eliab, Abinadab, and Shammah. Uh, Shammah is the youngest uh, brother of the three, and so he has to be at least how old? He has to be at least 20 years old. So that means Eliab and Abinadab are older, probably in their early to mid-20s. Now watch, watch. If Jesse and Mrs. Jesse had a son every 12 to 15 months, that means son number four is 19. That means son number five is 18. That means son number six is 17. That means son number seven is 16. And that means son number eight, David is, is 15. Maybe he's a little bit younger. Maybe he's 14. 14 or 15 years 
is how old he is. Now let's make sure that in our families, let's make sure that in our church family, we do not despise our youth. One day we will be gone, and they will be leading our families, and they will be leading our church family. Let's treat them with respect. Let's mentor them with patience. Let's lift them up and give them some wins under their belt. Let's not be so critical because they may not do it as exactly as we do it, nor should they. David is not going to face Goliath the way the older men would face him. Or should I say the way the older men should be facing him? Because they weren't facing him, were they? They weren't facing him. But they're, they're good and they're quick to criticize David. They're huddled on a mountain in fear. When I did Pastor Colton's annual review, I read one of his goals for 2019, and I read it to all of our staff in our staff meeting. One of his goals is for 2019 is to help the younger men on staff any way I can. You know, I think that's a good example for all of our staff, but I think it's a good example for all of our church as well. That's how Barnabas treated Paul. That's how Paul treated Timothy. And that's how we are all to treat our teens and our singles and our young families. Be an encourager, not a discourager. Put wind in their sails. Don't, don't cut up their sails. Pray for them and then tell them you pray for them and do it every week. But what about when they make mistakes? And they will because we did when we were under 40. When we were teenagers, help them to learn from their mistakes and grow from them. So, so David was a youth, but notice also David's heart. David's heart. David is, he is all in for God. Now we have to go back to 1 Samuel 16 and look at verse 7. And there the Bible says, The Lord said to Samuel, Look not in his countenance, uh, his face, his outward appearance, the height of his stature, because I have refused him, speaking of Eliab. For the Lord seeth not as a man seeth. For man looketh on the outward appearance, but the Lord looketh on what? On the heart. Do you know why God said that to Samuel? He said that to Samuel because of verse 6. In verse 6, when Samuel saw Eliab, he said, Surely, surely this is the Lord's anointed before me. I mean, this is, this is, this is uh, the oldest son. He's tall, dark, and handsome. I mean, he's just like King Saul. He's got to be the one. God says, no. He is not the one. I want you to look upon the heart Samuel is looking at the wrong thing. He's looking at the outside, but God is looking on the inside, looking at the heart. David had a heart for God. Uh, David loved what God loved. David hated what God hated. David feared God. David loved God. David obeyed God. Uh, David believed God. David's heart is going to be revealed when he hears the giant of Gath cursing God in the Jewish army in verse 23. David wants to know wants to know what the reward is for the man who kills God's enemy, the man who defies the armies of the living God in verse 26. David's heart is, is in great contrast to the heart of King Saul and the soldiers. Look in verse 11. Chapter 17, verse 11. When Saul and Israel heard these words of the Philistine, they were dismayed and greatly afraid. Look at verse 24. And all the men of Israel, when they saw the man... 
Goliath, they fled from him, and they were sore afraid. The Jewish army feared. The Jewish army fled. Uh, David is going to be more concerned about God than himself. The man or woman that God uses is someone who is more interested in exalting God than themselves. They're willing to put to death their selfishness. They're willing to put to death their pride and their boasting, and all their boasting is to be about God. So let's compare, let's compare David to Goliath. Uh, verse 1 to 10 gives us this introduction on Goliath. Goliath had all the things that would normally impress and intimidate, but David can see as God sees. David is neither impressed nor intimidated. No matter how big that giant may be, God is greater. God is bigger. And no matter how powerful that giant might be, God is more powerful. How big was Goliath? Verse 4, he is over nine feet tall. The NBA would love Goliath on their team. I mean, he is an enormous man, enormous man. He makes quite a first impression. We are awed with the detailed description of the champion from Gath. We pick it up in verse 5. He had a helmet of brass upon his head. He was armed with a coat of mail, and the weight of the coat was 5,000 shekels of brass. A heavy canvas-like undergarment interlaced with overlapping ringlets of bronze. It went from, from shoulder to knee. The body armor weighed between 175 and 200 pounds. Goliath also had a bronze helmet and bronze greaves. Greaves are leggings to protect his shins. The head of his spear alone weighed about 25 pounds. And he had a, he had a man to carry a shield, a man-sized shield to stand in front of him. You talk about double protection. He has his, he has his, his, his armor on, and then he has the, the uh, shield carrier I, I want you to pause for a moment and to allow your mind to picture such an imposing sight. Imagine how frightening it would be to take on a giant of this size, protected by this amount of armor. The odds are against anyone who will be so foolish to be able to take him on in battle. Goliath offered a common war tactic of the Eastern world, a one-on-one -on -one fight. Whoever won, his army won. Whoever lost, his army lost. And so he comes to the, 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 the valley and he, he speaks so the army can hear. There is no reason for everyone to die. Just send one, just one soldier to fight me. I'll take him on. I'm the champion. I'm, I'm the greatest. If he wins, we will serve you. If I win, you will serve us. He did this for 40 days. Man looks on the outward appearance, but God looks on, on the heart. He looks on the heart. David's heart is all in for God. Isn't this true of any giant we face? What are our giants? The giants of fear, the giants of worry, the giants of lust, the giants of unbelief, the giants of our dark past. They don't just come once, 
but morning and evening, day after day, relentlessly trying to intimidate us, trying to defeat us. And so every day, 40 days in a row, Goliath came into that valley and challenged God and the Jewish army. Your giants come in the form of maybe a person, maybe a past sin or failure by way of a memory, maybe a pressure, maybe a worry, maybe a fear, and they hammer at us day and night, yelling at us across our personal valley. If you face your giants in your own strength, you will feel defeated even before you get out of bed in the morning. But David had a heart for God. And because he had a heart for God, he can face down this giant and he can win, and so can you. And that brings us to David's faith. God is with us. God is with us. Back on the farm in Bethlehem, Jesse is wondering about how the Israeli army is doing over there in the valley of Eli, Eli uh, against the Philistine army, but, he, but he's really wondering about his sons. My oldest, Eliab, my second, Abinadab, my third, Shama. Verse 12. Now, now look at verse 12. <clears throat> Now David was the son of that Ephrathite of Bethlehem, Judah, whose name was Jesse. And he had eight sons. And the man went among men for an old man in the days of Saul. And there are the names listed in verse 13. Uh, David was the youngest. The three eldest followed Saul. Now verse 15 gives us a, a, a time sequence here. David went and returned from Saul to keep his father's sheep at Bethlehem. So that's a reference to, remember back at, at the end of chapter 16, he was playing for Saul to calm his spirit, to refresh his spirit. So David had been with Saul, played the harp, but now he's been sent back home. So he is back in Bethlehem, and he's watching his father's sheep. So David had returned back home. He was too young to be fighting in the army. He may have never even heard of Goliath. All he knew was that my three oldest brothers are off fighting in Saul's army. Jesse calls David and gives him these instructions, verse 17 and 18. Jesse said to David, his son, take now for thy brethren, for thy brothers, an ephah, a parched corn, these ten loaves, run to the camp to thy brethren, and carry these ten cheeses unto the captain of their thousand, and look how your brothers are faring, and take their pledge. Go check on my sons. David wasn't going there to fight, just a little more than a 10-mile trip. He was sent there by his dad to bring his brothers some refreshment and to make sure they were, make sure they were all right and let them know that dad was concerned and dad was praying for them. So the sun rose that morning like any other morning for David and Goliath. Isn't that the way life is? No, no warning. But the truth is that on the 41st morning of Goliath's challenge, it was going to be his last day of his life. It was going to be the first day of David's heroic life. And nobody announced it. No angel blasted a horn from heaven singing, Goliath, Goliath, today you're history. Today you're going to die. Today you're a dead man. No angel announced, David, this is your day. This is your day, and people are going to talk about it for 3,000 years. David just rose up like he always did. Instructions from Dad. So he gets another shepherd to watch the sheep, and he makes the trip to the mountain called Azekah, or as some say, Azekah. 
Can you imagine what is going through David's mind as he came over the hill and he sees the army spread out below him? I wonder if he stood and stared with his mouth wide open as he sized up the scene. I wonder what went through his mind. It must have been exciting. It must have been frightening all at once. I mean, for a teenager who has spent all these years on the lonely hills of Bethlehem to come and now see this excitement and uh, there's going to be a battle. He hears the war cry and he gets excited as any kid would. Verse 22, And David left his carriage in the hand of the keeper of the carriage and ran to the army and came and saluted his brethren. Picture the moment. He's just talking with his three brothers and, and says, Dad greets you and Dad sends this food to you. But then he hears Goliath ranting against his God. Verse 23, and as he talked with them, his brothers, behold, there came up the champion, the Philistine of Gath, Goliath by name, out of the armies of the Philistine. And he spake according to the same words. And David heard them. He looks across the battlefield, the Valley of Elah. He sees this giant from Gath. He hears the challenge. Suddenly he is, he's standing alone. Why? Verse 24. And all the men of Israel, when they saw the man, fled from him, from David, and were sore afraid. When David heard this giant of a guy defying and cursing the God of Israel, he became livid. He thought, no one talks that way about the God of Israel. Now, Goliath has been doing this for 40 days. Nobody seemed to mind to do anything about it, but this is the first time David heard it. David is not intimidated. Why? Because of his faith, because he knows that God is with him. David asks, what's, what's the reward uh, for the man who takes this, this, this bad soldier down? And the news is, well, you, you get the king's daughter in marriage. You get tax exemption for your dad's house and land. And you get great riches. Goliath has been saying, choose a man to come down to me in verse 8. But on this day, he crossed the ravine, and they say, have you seen this man who is coming up? Goliath is getting bolder. He is getting nearer. And this is the way in your life, if you don't deal with the Goliaths, they're going to take more territory. They're going to come at you and get closer and closer. You can't afford to tolerate the Goliaths in your life. You need to have faith and obedience, and you need to go after them. Don't live with them. Don't tolerate them. We'll come back to the conversation with Alive in a couple of weeks. I want you to see why David was so strong in faith. We find it in verse 32. David said to Saul, Let no man's heart fail because of him. Thy servant will go and fight with this Philistine. I'll take him on. I'll go after this uncircumcised Philistine. Uh, God can use me to bring him down. Uh, King Saul is looking on the outward appearance. He says, you can't do this. You can't do this. Why? Verse 33, because you are not able to go up. You are a youth, and he is a man of war from his youth. You're just a kid. He's a giant. But David is looking over there and thinking, what giant? I don't see a giant. The only giant in my life is God, King Saul. That's a dwarf over there. God is not impressed with the externals. He looks on the heart. If I am on his side, I'm on the winning side. So David begins to explain his faith. 
because I have seen God work in the past. I know he will work in the future. I mean, faith is like a muscle, and the more you use it, the stronger it becomes. We give by faith, and we serve by faith, and we witness by faith, and each time we see God work, our faith muscle gets stronger. And so here we see David's experiences of the past. I killed a lion and I killed a bear. Verse 34, he tells Saul, David said, thy servant kept my father's sheep and there came a lion and a bear and took a lamb out of the flock. I went out after him. I smote him and delivered it out of his mouth. And when he arose against me, I caught him by the beard and smote him and slew him. Thy servant slew both the lion and the bear. God has helped me kill a lion and a bear. Don't you feel sorry for the Bible critics? They mock and they say, oh, that's impossible, just impossible. Now, David th did this with God's help, didn't he? He did it with God's help. He he'll tell us that in a, just a moment. But if it can be done today, if a man can take on a lion today, then certainly it could be done back then with God's help. And so, you may have heard of it, a man was jogging. The lion came upon him. He didn't have a sword. He didn't have a gun. He didn't have a sling, just his bare hands. I want you to watch what happened. ...spread all over the world. Everyone was trying to figure out the identity of the person behind it. Well, now that victim's come forward to share his own version of what happened when he went out for a jog and had to fight for his life. News stations dubbed him the King of the North. The unknown Colorado jogger who survived a mountain lion attack by killing the animal with his bare hands has come forward. Hey, everybody. Uh, just a show of hands. Uh, who all is disappointed that I'm not, in fact, Chuck Norris? 31-year-old <laughs> environmental consultant Travis Kaufman met with reporters Thursday to share his version of that face-off. I couldn't believe it when I turned. Like, no way, no way. On February 4th, Kaufman, out on a trail run, heard a rustling in the pine needles behind him. A young mountain lion was stalking just 10 feet away. As it got close, it just kind of lunged at me, so I threw my arms up, lashed onto my wrist, and then it just started clawing along my like face and then my legs. I was just kind of screaming the whole time, um, doing my barbarian yell as best I could. <laughs> Also known as cougars or pumas, mountain lions rarely attack, with only 20 human deaths in the last century. But encounters do happen. Earlier this week, surveillance video caught a cat hunting a deer in a California swimming pool. But experts say the animals are elusive and usually avoid human contact. It really clicked after I hit it in the head with a rock and it still didn't release my wrist. Um, that at that point, more drastic measures were necessary. Park rangers say Kaufman knew exactly what to do. He stood his ground, made noise, and waved his arms to appear bigger. He used sticks and rocks while wrestling the animal, but ultimately had to choke it to free himself. I ended up getting 17 stitches along my cheek here, and then another uh, six along the bridge of my nose, and then two over here on this side of the cheek. He also says he'll hit the trail again soon, though from now on, he'll be running with a friend. I feel really fortunate that the situation turned out the way that it did. Travis's incredible story of survival bringing with it a surge of popularity, as his girlfriend Annie can attest. One of my coworkers, her first reaction when she found out it was Travis was, you gotta lock that down. <laughs> 
And Travis says he's also thankful he wasn't wearing earbuds at the time because he never would have heard that approaching mountain lion. All right, so it's happened. It happened this year. A man killed a lion with his bare hands. So much for the critics. So much for the mockers. I guess they're not so smart, are they? Couple of lessons we learned from that. Don't jog with earbuds, all right? <laughs> Don't jog alone. Don't jog without a gun, all right? <laughs> A lot of good lessons we can learn from that. Uh, here's how David's faith works. God worked yesterday. God can work today. Look with me at verse 36. Thy servant slew both the lion and the bear, and this uncircumcised Philistine shall be as one of them, seeing he hath defied the armies of the living God. David said, moreover, the Lord that delivered me out of the paw of the lion and out of the paw of the bear... He will deliver me out of the hand of this Philistine. And Saul said to David, Go, and the Lord be with thee. We see David's faith coming through so strong because God worked yesterday. We often forget what we ought to remember, and we remember what we ought to forget. Think of that. We often forget what we ought to remember, and we remember what we ought to forget. We remember our defeats, and we forget our victories. Most of us can recite the failures of our lives in vivid detail, but we are hard-pressed to name the specific and amazing victories that God has pulled off in our past. Not so with David. He says, you know why I can fight Goliath? Because the same God who gave me the power over the lion, the power over the bear, will give me the power over Goliath. It is God who will empower me. So just let me at him. Let's pray. Father, thank you. Thank you for a, a young man, a teenager, who had faith, who had love, who had courage, who had conviction. And 3,000 years later, we're still talking about the most amazing battle in the Valley of Elam. Father, I pray tonight that as we consider uh, the giants that scare us, that bring fear and worry and distress, I pray that we can follow David's example and for the glory of God, for the honor of your name, that those giants will be put to death and brought down, that we might sing the praises of our Savior and the power of God, because you, you are greater than our problems. You are greater than our giants. Father, I pray if there is one here tonight that they're not certain that heaven is their home. They have a giant of unbelief that needs to be slayed tonight. They need to believe what Dr. Phil said, that all have sinned and come short of the glory of God, and the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. Draw them to your family. And now I pray for each Christian that we will give ourselves afresh this week the opportunities to be used by the Spirit of God
to invite people into your family this Easter season. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. Amen. May we stand together as we sing a song of praise to the Lord. I love you, Lord. I lift my voice to worship our Savior. Maybe you want to pray at the altar, pray in your seat, but you choose to be a David to slay the giants in your life as we sing on the first verse. <laughs>